Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, we discuss how to think differently about Sub-Saharan Africa. How do we craft new stories, confront old stereotypes, and contribute to a more dynamic vision of the region's opportunities and challenges? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. U.S. policymakers and media tend to traffic in outdated stereotypes and old tropes about the African continent. How do we think differently about the region and tell new stories about its opportunities and challenges? Joining me to discuss new perspectives on the continent are David Pilling, Africa editor of the Financial Times, Patrick Athara, a journalist, cartoonist, blogger, and author, and Nnedi Okorafor, an award-winning author of Who Fears Death, the Binti Novella Trilogy, The Book of Phoenix, The Akata Books, and Lagoon. This is my final episode as the host of Into Africa. In the past three years, we've released 73 episodes and hosted 222 different guests. And yes, I counted. But I saved the best for last, and I've been struck by how unimaginative conversations about Africa tend to be in the circles that I travel in here in Washington, D.C. And so I wanted to talk to three people who I deeply admire, I learn a lot from, and I'm inspired by. So we're going to break with the normal segments. We're not going to do the news items. We're not going to do the paradigm. We're just going to dig into this conversation about the creative process and new approaches to framing issues across Africa. So maybe, Nettie, I'm going to start with you. How do you choose the stories and topics that you tackle in your work? I read in Who Fears Death that it was inspired in part by a story about Darfur. I mean, how do you come up with such an incredible body of work? Yeah, my inspirations tend to be a lot of real world stuff, personal stuff. You know, it's kind of a blend of all of that. And when I first started writing Who Fears Death, it was inspired by the passing of my father. So that was the beginning of it. And so as I was writing this thing, you know, I'm not an outliner. I don't, you know, sit down and outline the whole story and take it from there. I'm very much someone who writes kind of subconsciously. You know, if, if something hits me, I'd sit down and start writing it. And so Who Fears Death originally started with the passing of my father. And it was I started writing it on the day of his wake keeping. But as I wrote it, all of these other issues kind of whipped into the story. And one of them was around that time, I had read this news article and it was in the Washington Post and it was called something like, we want to make a lighter baby. And it was a, a story about Darfur and about the Janjaweed, which was men on horses who were attacking these black African women and you know, assaulting them. And not only that, it wasn't just about the story. It was also from the point of view of one of the women who had been assaulted. And when I read this story, it was just so clear, the evil of it, the evil of what they were doing, that just, and, and then also the woman's voice and all of that just kind of went right into the narrative that I was writing. It was, there's something very close with it. And then that kind of blended with this, I started thinking about the Biafran war and genocide and all of that. And so that's really how the narrative of Who Fears Death kind of grew out of the personal and then also what was happening in the world at the same time. And maybe just a follow-up, because when I read your work, particularly with the Binti series, I, I keep reading in Biafra at times, right? 
I keep reading in sort of the, the, the rivalries and tensions between Nigeria's ethnic groups. I mean, is that a wise way to read your work or should we just not have those touch points? Oh, definitely. I should be read like that because, you know, I'm, I'm Igbo. Both my parents are Igbo. And I've grown up hearing the stories about Biafra. Like every Nigerian family has that ghost hovering over them. You know, you hear about it from different angles. For me, being Igbo, I have stories of the way it affected the Igbo people. I've grown up with that. And so like for me, when I write, those things always bubble up. It's not something that I specifically think about where I'm like, okay, I want to write about this specific issue. It's not like that at all. It's very subconscious, but it's always there. So Who Fears Death was definitely touched by those memories of the Biafran War. And for me, even though I'm Nigerian-American, I'm also a very curious Nigerian-American. So I asked a lot of questions and I wanted to know you know, these stories, because they're, they're always these hints always around me growing up. And so those definitely made it into the narratives that I'm writing. And the same with Binti, just these ideas of negotiating, wartime, all those themes. A lot of that comes from, you know, my own experience with the Biafran War and, and being a child of all of that. Patrick, what bubbles up for you when you do your work? I mean, I, I think that some of the columns that you write are incredibly biting. I mean, they're good medicine for those of us who work on Africa here in the West, but also your cartoons too. I mean, how do you think about your work and, and what drives you towards telling stories differently? I think for me, it's, it's very much about trying to understand what's happening here where I stay in, in Kenya, uh, in the region, uh, uh, in Africa, and to, uh, to some extent in the world. And to try and put a lens from where I sit, you know, what does it look like to me? One of the things that has always troubled me is is kind of happenings in Africa tends to tend to be presented almost as complete stories, complete in and of themselves, without a history, without a background, without understanding where problems came from, you know. And for me, just trying to get to grips to that history, much of which is completely hidden and is very difficult to actually get to, to be honest, is one thing that, that kind of drives me. And I think that history goes a, a really long way in explaining why the continent is as it is with all its good and all its bad. You know, um, and, and, and I think for many people who try and engage with it, they think of it as mysterious because they see it as sort of fully formed without seeing the history that led to it, without understanding how it came to be that way. So for me, that I think is for the most part is what drives me to to write about it, to try and bring some little bit of understanding of you know where, where the continent is, where it came from, and uh, hopefully where it's going. To your cartoons, I mean, is there a different series of stories or topics that you think are, are better tackled in that art form versus writing, or is everything fair game? <laughs> I think from a cartoonist's point of view, pretty much everything is fair game. And, and I think that there are certain things you can say much more succinctly in a cartoon than you ever could in, uh, uh, in words. It would take whatever tomes to explain a particular point that you can really illustrate quite quickly in a cartoon. And and I think that it's, for me, when I write, I try to couple it with cartoons as well. So, for example, when I write for Al Jazeera, I'll be doing a cartoon for them. 
to accompany the article. And, and I tried to, to think of the cartoon not just as illustrating the point I'm making in the article, but sort of complementing it, trying to explain something that is not exactly articulated completely in the piece. Okay, let's, let me turn to David, because I think you and I, David, are in the same boat, right? We're, we're outsiders trying to uh, understand and help tell stories about Africa. So, you know, what does that mean for you as you think about what's in your columns? Or particularly, you know, you just did a recently a, a very good FT lunch with Mulatu, the Ethiopian jazz artist. How, how do you think about that sort of story selection and how to convey nuance to your audience? Well, uh, with difficulty, I suppose, is the answer. I have to be uh, humble <laughs> and I have to make sure that different voices come through the stories that I try to write. There's a great variety and I'm, I'm fortunate, I mean, that journalism has its limitations for sure, but uh, there is a great variety of kinds of pieces that I'm able to write, that our Africa team is able to write at the FT. So from, you know, opinion pieces to long interviews to, you know, what you might call spot news to analysis to big long pieces. Um, you know, some of what we write is very much triggered by the news, um, news today that the US is imposing fresh sanctions on uh, Ethiopia and various actors in Ethiopia, uh, a coup in Guinea, a terror attack in the Sahel, or, a, you know, whether business paper, a company, um, you know, um, floating on the stock market whose primary business is in Africa. Um, but there's also, as I said, there's a kind of a random element, you know, especially in the think pieces, which may be triggered by where I am, who I've spoken to, smart people like your other two guests today, might trigger ideas. Um, you know, I might be writing about why Abi Ahmed, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, then has gone to war, what that means, uh, why Rwanda imposed a ban on secondhand clothes, and why that angered the US, you know, Nigeria's Twitter ban, why a Ugandan environmental activist who went to Davos and was in a photograph with Greta Thunberg was then cut out of that photograph, and what that said about how seriously Africa is taken in terms of big debates like the climate debate. Um, so, you know, I think there's, there's, there's a lot going on. I don't necessarily claim that there's rhyme or reason. Of course, we try to cover the kind of the waterfront, but some things just kind of, you use this phrase, bubble up. So we cover state capture in South Africa, but we also try to cover, you know, an interview with Woloszynka or the performance of the Africa CDC during the pandemic, science in Africa, Nollywood, industrial policy. So I'm writing a piece about car production in Morocco, which is actually normally outside my, my patch, but also I've written about the obstacles of making chocolate in Ghana or in Madagascar, for example, um, rather than selling raw cocoa beans. So it's very, very mixed. I think if I had a, a sort of a unifying sort of raison d'etre, I guess it is to try to subvert stereotypes, to deal in nuance, uh, to try to avoid cliché um, and I try to do that, you know, successfully or not. I mean, one of the challenges is that all of us are talking to different audiences, right? When I write at CSIS or do podcasts like this one, you know, I know that there's going to be some Africa policy wonks. There's going to be uh, African intellectuals on the continent or in the diaspora. And there may be some generalists who are just curious. And 
um, you know, modulating your, your story so you're giving what you need for different audiences is quite difficult. How do you think about doing that? I try to write about what I'm interested in. I mean, I'm, I appreciate that I write for a global business newspaper where we have a, a, a business audience that will want to know some things about, you know, doing business in Nigeria or South Africa or debt negotiations following the Zambian debt default, political risk you know, following a coup, what's going to happen to aluminium prices, etc. There's all of that. But, you know, I also love Murato Astake and thought that he'd make a very interesting interviewee when I happened to be in Addis. So sat down and did a long piece with him. Um, you know, we write about young African entrepreneurs. We write about African unicorns, you know, the billion dollar companies rather than the uh, single horned animals. Um, of course, I'm talking about. Um, so, you know, I think... You know, if you're doing business in Africa, but if you're thinking about different African countries, if you're visiting, if you're just a member of the human race who wants to be a little more informed, then I think anything written with kind of integrity, with multiple voices, with as much care as possible taken to getting facts straight, with, as Patrick says, as much as one can in, in a journalistic format, you know, trying to incorporate the history, why things are, are the way they are. That doesn't necessarily always have to be just a blame game or a finger-pointing game. You know, it can be something to do, uh, an explanation game, let's say. So, you, you know, there are mul multiple audiences and multiple, um, multiple interests, and you try to pursue those as best you can. I don't know if I'll ever get this right, but I, I like your point, David, about just being authentic to your interest, and that's probably the best way to talk to lots of different audiences. But Nelly, I think about like the scope of your work, writing young adult fiction, some of the other novels that are not you know necessarily for, for adolescents, but the comic books that you've written, the Black Panther series, and, and now a lot of your work is being translated you know, into feature series on some of the streaming services. That's, that's a lot of different people that you're trying to tell this story to. Is, is there a particular way that you think about your different audiences? So yeah, I write for adults, I write for children, I write for young adults, I write comics, I'm doing screenplays. So I'm in many different types of mediums, many different types of, uh, many different audiences, many different mediums, all of that. But I don't really worry too much about that. When it comes to place, when I'm writing about parts of the continent, I'd like to be really specific. You know, so if I'm writing about someplace, I, I'm, I, you know, I don't say that I'm writing about like this story is set in Africa. I'm always very, very specific. I'm specific about the city. I'm specific about the village. That's really important to me um, because like there's, there's, a, there's nuance in that. First of all, like th this idea that Africa is a country is very pervasive where it, it's like where every part of it is it's the same it's where in reality you go down the street you just go a few miles down the street and it, there's something else happening there's a different dialect being spoken and that's within within a country and we're within a town so i'm very aware of that so the way that i tell the story it's not just about explaining everything at the same time it's also about choosing not to explain some things, and that's part of it too. And that's part of telling the story, but also making sure the story is understood in the proper perspective. So, like one of one of my when I first started writing these stories, what I what what inspired me to do that was I wanted to see these stories from the point of view of within. And there's there's and 
it's not just okay the character is from this specific this specific area but there's there's it's it's more complex than that it's really hard to explain um this idea of how do you tell a story from this inside perspective? What, is that, what does that mean? And what does that mean to the audience that you're telling the story to? There are a lot of things in the way that it's done. So it's not just in explaining, it's also in what I don't say, what I choose not to explain, those things that I, that I feel that the reader needs to understand and, le and learn to understand. That's also part of the story, part of telling the story. So, I mean, it sounds kind of contradictive in that in one way, I'm telling the story in this specific way because I understand the audiences that are taking in the story are not familiar with the type of story, with the culture, with the place that I'm setting the story in. But at the same time, I don't really think too hard about it. You know, like I, I tell the story and I'm not caught up in explaining every aspect. So, because I'm worried that the reader is not gonna understand. I think just like a lot of these considerations are actually part of telling the story, if that makes sense. No, actually it's really revelatory because I think the pieces and the work that I've done that I've been most um, underwhelmed by, my own work is the ones where I've decided to explain something that I probably shouldn't mm -hmm. have because it, usually that quick reaction piece, that explanatory piece, I end up grabbing tropes um, and, and shorthands that, that I'm not mm -hmm. truly invested in, but the demand for explanation, I don't know, sometimes mm -hmm. forces me into it. So I, I, not only do I agree with you, I need to do more of that. And Patrick, maybe you're already doing that, but the big fundamental thing for this episode for me is like, how do you challenge yourself to think differently, to inject new themes? It's one of the goals, has always been my goal in my own work, and to whether if it's a good news story, to, to make sure that there's some nuance in there and make sure that I'm doing it in a fulsome way. If it's a bad news story, to add more perspective. But more than any of those things, try to find the story that I don't see people talking about. Um, I think you do that really well. And how do you kind of keep going after all of these years and continue to have the impact that you do? Well, I mean, I think there are many, many stories to tell. I mean, many more than, uh, I mean, one could exhaust in a lifetime. There's always something new. But there's always, I have found, threads that tie all these stories together so that um, you can find common themes in almost like everyday happenings. I mean, there's once I wrote a story about sort of the class structure in Kenya, looking at it through just how people the roads, you know, or how they use the roads, you know, who are the people who are privileged on the roads and how masses are pushed off of it and they can only get on when they get together in a bunch, you know, and force their way across. And I think it was a really great metaphor for how Kenyan politics works, how Kenyan society seems to work, you know. Um, and, 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 and I think if, if, if one is just, just keeps curious and you keep um, looking at what uh, what's happening in front of your eyes and not just to discard it uh, or to discount it, um, I think one can learn quite a lot of lessons about that. And also kind of trigger some uh, thoughts about, you know, where does this behavior come from? You know, um, and rather than just dismiss it, ah, that's just Kenyans being Kenyans or Africans being Africans. You know, you actually drill into it, you actually find some really interesting historical tidbit, just small things that can help you make sense of the bigger picture. You know, but I also wanted to say something about the whole audience thing because I think it relates also 
a lot to the spaces that um, uh, audiences put you in and editors as well, uh, in my case. Because I find uh, when I write, I've got an idea of, you know, is this going to basically a local publication where they can understand them? I don't have to go into the minutiae of explaining things. Or is it going to an international publication where there's a, a likelihood that a large number of people who see it might not know the intricacies of Kenyan politics, for example, that is something I'm dealing with. So I will sort of try and structure. I won't change so much the meat of what I'm writing about, but I will um, include some detail that I might not include in others. But the, 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 the more disturbing thing I find is this idea that because you are from Kenya, from Nairobi, you should write about things that happen in Kenya or in East Africa or in Africa, basically. I've been told this by a bunch of yeah. uh, editors. That that's what people are interested in, is what's happening there. As if you cannot be an African person here who's interested in the U.S. election, who wants to give a perspective on what's happening with Brexit. You know, we are not allowed those sorts of voices. And uh, uh, many times I, I, I find like you kind of have to push your way in um, for that, and and for me, it's it's really really important to understand that Africa is not just a place that uh, uh, for others to comment on, but it's got its own views about the world, about how the world is run, and that those views matter. You know, that people over here watch these things uh, on the on, on CNN, you know, uh, on Fox News sometimes, you know, and stuff and. They've got views, they've got opinions, and those opinions matter and they can be actually quite educative, you know, even for people outside the continent. You know, um, lots of people who I speak to um, uh, as a result of some of the pieces I write, I mean, will come back and say, I did not know this about my country, you know, which lots of times is some of the reactions I get when I read, for example, what David writes. You know, so there's an exchange there to be had. I don't think that um, uh, it, it helps too much if we shut down one side of it. I'm so glad that you said that because as I think about my time at CSIS, one of the contributions that we're most proud of is that we started a series called Africa Reacts. And it came from, I think, that same view, Patrick. Well, first of all, it came from something very personal, which is my entire career I've been paid to sort of analyze African politics. And I thought that was particularly one-sided. And so we did 12, at least 12 of what, um, talking to people that we really respect and admire academics, thought leaders and journalists about, you know, what's your reaction to the Iowa caucus, uh, particularly some of the technology problems, or what do you think about the George Floyd uh, murder? And like everybody had like different views on, um, on, on all of these things. And I guess I was, I guess I was expecting a lot more cynicism about the state of American uh, democracy, uh, given uh, particularly we ran at most through uh, 2020 and a little bit through this year. Uh, I was I was surprised, actually, I don't know, Patrick, if this is what you're hearing or, or Nettie or, or David, but it was more of a sense of loss from many of the experts that I talked to and asked to just do their analysis on Africa. They, a sense of loss about what the U.S. used to stand for and doesn't stand for anymore, as opposed to like, you think you're so high and mighty and now look how much you've fallen. It was really, it was really a lament. 
I think there is quite a lot of the sort of schadenfreude at uh, uh, how low the US came. I think that is coupled with loss. To be honest, I mean, it's, it's, it's a mixed feeling because it's, I mean, if you look, for example, from the Kenyan lens, you find that um, the US was quite instrumental in uh, uh, helping us when we were pushing, you know, against the Moy um, uh, dictatorship, both in terms of financing and providing refuge for people who were persecuted. So there is a sense in which that the U.S. was um, sort of a bulwark for democracy, if you will, and people do mourn that loss. I feel it as well. But there's also the other side of it, which is not so much spoken about, which was the misbehavior of the U.S. across the world and just how that, coupled with its rhetoric about democracy and rights, um, makes it look quite hypocritical. And therefore, when it has its problems with Trump and allegations of stolen elections, people will feel that, well, it's actually being cut down to size. You know, this is the U.S. now. They can't come and laugh at us, shithole countries. You know, I mean, welcome to the club. And I think that if that for me is, can be summed, it becomes an opportunity for us to have an open engagement, you know, an open discussion that acknowledges, yes, there are there's lots of good that comes out of the US, you know, and many people given a green card today would jump at it. You know, but there's also lots of really bad things, really awful things that the US has done that it needs to own up to. Nettie, do you wanna jump in here? Yeah, um, I wanna agree with everything that he just said. Um uh, I will also like I don't wanna speak for everybody or anything like that, but I know in, in my experience from what, what I've seen in terms of the response, I've seen a lot of cynicism, a lot of it, um, a lot of laughter as well. But also I think that after all of that has kind of settled, I, I think that there, that what, what I find really interesting is that I feel like there's a sort of leveling, a leveling out where now it seems like, you know, of course the, the United States has its positives and negatives, but now, that illusion is is gone. And so now like we can properly dialogue without, you know, American, the United States seeming like it's all the way up here and and is is kind of talking down to um, those and and you know those on the continent where that illusion of of the United States being the land of milk and honey, I think is gone. And I yeah. think that was a, a necessary thing. And I think that with that illusion being gone, the the, the possibility for proper dialogue is, is more possible now. I mean, you know, of course, everything that happened, you know, a lot of really problematic things have happened and I'm not saying that those are a good thing, but like, I just think that now um, there's a better chance for just a, a more level dialogue. I think that aspect is good. Totally, I, I'm really excited to see, I haven't seen it as much as I wanted to so far, a humility that says we don't have it all. We haven't figured it out. We're trying to work on it. Many of our counterparts are trying to work on it as well. But and then this is the next step for me. What can we learn? What can we learn from South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, right? What can we learn about the way some West African countries have dealt with DDR and demobilization? And what are the lessons that we can apply in the U.S. for our you know, right-wing extremist fundamentalist groups in terms of how do you deal with, with these types of groups. So it's, 
it's not it's meeting each other in the same place recognizing that no one's figured this out but it's also asking questions about how do we learn from different experiences I'm wondering, David, if you've been able to see a change in the way that the FT writes uh, globally, right? Is there a new universality in terms of how the paper thinks you think about different regions and, and do some of the things that, that Patrick and Nendi are talking about, um, you know, inserting uh, lessons from Africa into other regions and being more judicious about, you know, not saving a series of adjectives and adverbs just for one region that are not applied equally elsewhere? I would say it's work in progress, you know, and I would say uh, some, uh, you know, the FT is a very broad church. Some of our writers might do that better than others. I think there is an attempt for sure at the FT and at other papers to kind of broaden the um, the scope of voices and what people can write about. And I would like to fully back what Patrick was saying. Someone sitting in Kenya ought to be able to write about tribal politics in Britain, for example, the, you know, the putative breakup of a nation, or state violence in the US, or press censorship in China, you know, and, and that can absolutely add to a multiplicity of voices. I mean, just in terms of, you know, how I personally might try to kind of, you, you were talking about injecting, injecting new themes, again, picking up um, on what, what both Neddy and uh, Patrick said, you know, I think for me, there's a, cu- a couple of things. What I remember once as a very young reporter, actually, and I was sent to Nigeria. I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. It was just for a you know a couple of weeks, and the Africa editor at the time said you should I should go and follow a bank clerk for 24 hours, uh, and this guy kindly agreed that I could do that and was able, I hope, to you know present his sort of view of the world, you know, which was very different from what you might have um, thought if you went in to see him in his shiny bank, you know. So we went to his church, we struggled through Lagos traffic in a, you know, rickety bus and uh, we went to his home and, you know, so so it's writing these individual stories. Then I think there's also the broader frameworks that, that can be useful as long as they're not rigid. So, for example, I spent 15 years in Asia, partly in Japan, and then partly as the Asia editor of the FT. And I think I've definitely brought a sort of an Asian prism to how I look at some of stories in Africa. And though the word Asia may never appear when I'm writing about Liberia or when I'm writing about Cote d'Ivoire or whatever it might be, or a company or a person, that might always be in the back of my mind, the kind of the Asian experience um, and after all, there are some Asian countries that went from being, you know, relatively poor to becoming pretty rich. Um, you know, I'm thinking of, say, a South Korea and just kind of looking at the, the you know, how, how those countries got from A to B um, and what the, what, what the stages were and how that can, you know, might be applied. So there's a kind of a, there's these different frameworks and then there are these individual stories. And I think somehow one has to meld or at least present a kind of a mixture of of all of these things so that you get a a multiplicity of view. When I was in government at one point, I really thought that I should work India for a little bit or Indonesia or, or, or countries in the global north so I could be a better African analyst, right? That spending my entire career just working on uh, 49 countries in this region was actually to the discredit of the countries that I was following in my analysis. 
but I think we're going to do like a lightning round here because I, I want to just kind of go through with the three of you. If there's any persistent stereotypes or factoids, they can be, you know, bullish or they could be reductive that you have been trying to debunk or discredit. I'll just share mine, which is a bullish one, but it frustrates me to know and is that when a U.S. policymaker wants to talk about sort of Africa rising, they will always say something like six out of 10 of the fastest growing economies are in Africa. And it drives me crazy because oftentimes in different versions of this, it's like Sierra Leone and Niger that are going from a very small base and doing some you know very minimal growth. Uh, but it also, I think, doesn't do much in terms of helping an investor think about opportunities. Um, it's just, it feels like a throwaway and doesn't allow you to get really deep um, in terms of talking about some of the really exciting economic opportunities, but some of the challenges as well. So that that's mine. Nettie, do you have do you have one or two that just get under your skin? I think well, one that I've already kind of mentioned is that just that whole idea of Africa being a country. It just drives me batty because it's just uh, it's so wrong. Like it's a continent, of course, but it's such a diverse, a huge, vast, diverse continent with so many different cultures and so much going on and so much to offer the world. So there's that. The second, I guess, would be I'm, I'm a science fiction writer. And, and one of the things that one of the reasons why I started writing science fiction in the first place was because I wanted to see African futures. I wanted to see what different parts of Africa looked like in the future. And, and like one stereotype that I see is is kind of this unspoken assumption that that Africa will not be leading the future or won't even be in the future. It is not part of the narrative. It is a part of the world that will hang on to the trajectory. Like it hangs on, it, will, it would never lead the way. And so like, that's something that, that I deal with very much in my work and that I'm, that I'm obsessed with debunking in, in my work and, and showing as opposed to telling, because you can say this over and over again, and, and I, I feel like people still have a hard time imagining such a thing, imagining any part of Africa being in the future or being a futuristic setting or being technologically advanced. It's just so difficult for people to imagine. So that's something that I'm kind of obsessed with, with portraying. Those are great. And that's one of the things that I really get out of, out of your work. David, what are the, what's a couple of stereotypes, factoids, frames that you're trying to, to rid a, the world of? Yeah, well, I guess there's quite a few. Uh, I would definitely back up what Nettie says. I mean, I, I used to live in Japan. You know, Japan after the Second World War was told by the Americans, make beads and silk. That's what you're good at. And they said, no, we prefer to make, you know, cars and computers. Thanks very much. Um, you know, the, the past is not necessarily a good predictor um, of the future. There could be a future in which, you know, many African countries remain poor and are left behind, but there could be a completely alternative future in which... You know, they catch up and surpass leapfrog to use an overworn word, which is actually one of the words I would always try to avoid. But it does, I suppose, um, it does carry something. One word that I basically banned, certainly I, I would never use, is tribal. You know, you have tribes in heavy quotation marks of 40 million people um, in Africa, say the Oromo, the Yoruba the Igbo, you know, you don't ever call Iceland with its 600,000 people a tribe. So the word seems just totally ridiculous and redundant to me. 
I'm always worried about explanations that rely on ethnicity. They may be true sometimes, but I, but I think people fall back on those far too easily. The idea of science, I'm very big on. I have tried to interview, I have interviewed African scientists, you know, scientists from Cameroon, from Nigeria, from Zambia, you know, who are working on genomic projects, trials of drugs which have been developed pretty much wholly, you know, on the continent. So that's something else that I think is, you know, useful to try to and subvert this. I'm, I'm very interested in the vaccine story and the making of vaccines um, on the continent, something which can be very easily done, it just needs willpower, really. And I think that will be done. So these are the kind of things I could go on, but those are, those are some of them. All right, Patrick, I'm going to give you uh, the last word, add to our list of things that we should just stop doing. Well, I think the first one for me would be uh, stop imagining that um, colonialism was this time of advancement, the West and Europe civilizing. Stop glossing over the brutality of it, stop glossing over the theft that happened and continues to happen. Actually, there's quite a lot that goes wrong in on the continent can be really well explained by what happened during uh, colonialism and the fact that people are still trying to come to terms. Uh, uh, with it. So um, that for me would be the first one. It's just let's have an actual honest discussion about what the West did here and not present it as this um, civilizing mission, which I think until um, today many want to do. The other thing is, and this ties it to what Nedi was, was talking about and uh, to an extent David as well, is this kind of extremes. Africa is either Wakanda or it is this real um, dump, you know. Um, and I don't understand why we need to be in the extremes, you know, um, why we can't just be seen as people who are getting along, who are trying to do the best with what they have, you know. And the best shouldn't be described um, in terms of what the West aspires to be, this idea that they are developed and their vision of you know cars and big buildings and roads equaling development, I think it's something we need to actively question. You know, um, I, I find the whole thing in Kenya, for example, where we chop down trees to build highways. You know, and people call it development because they've been taught this one image, you know, of we've got to look like Paris, we've got to look like London. If you look at, for example, even Wakanda, the way it is presented, you know, it's basically a white man's fantasy. And I would want us down here to think about it more, to query, you know, what is it that makes us underdeveloped and what would we consider to be developed? I find basic social services it is much more important than some of the visions that our presidents over here tried to lobby on us i mean kenya has just built a railway next to another one you know parallel to another railway and called it development you know so there are huge huge problems with the ideas of development mandalay to see that i would want to be questioned yeah i think that would be the top two or three on my list, but uh, there's obviously many more. Well, I, I think that's a great way to, to end the podcast. I want to thank my three guests for joining me today. And I want to say that, you know, when I 
came to CSIS, doing this podcast was the number one thing that I, I wanted to do, excited about doing. It's really been the heart and soul of this program for the past three years. I, I look forward to every two weeks recording these episodes and then sharing them. So I want to thank our audience for listening. I want to thank you know all of our various producers over the past three years and, and to all of our guests. I hope Into Africa will continue after I leave, but uh, it's been a wild ride and thank you so much. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.